1: What's the word, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for not calling an audible and just letting your device download the 113th dash of Scoring at the Movies podcasting. We yap about sports films that first saw the light of day many years ago, and we do our very best to spoil them from end zone to end zone. I'm the Texas-area quarterback who needs to learn how to play the game, and I don't just mean the game of football, Ryan Max Ellis. And here's the broken-down wide receiver with great hands, who wears his sweatshirts inside-out and learned to speak Canadian years ago, Poot chris DiGregorio, gregorio poot is an inside joke as well that i won't reveal to our audience you won't take that any further <laughs> but that but is I... a nickname of nick nolte in this film is it really i yeah, didn't hear that max of course seth maxwell but he calls him max i know that one yeah and then we hear a few times that mac davis calls nick nolte poot
0: maybe i misunderstood what he was saying but i thought i was hearing p-o-o-t it's true very funny i appreciate that and I'm also appreciative of you letting me start this podcast, Ryan, instead of keeping me on the bench, as is normally the case, because I got myself xylocaine from tip to tail. Really would have been a bummer if I wasn't able to start.
1: <laughs> that was a good touch, actually. He was just a decoy. Bit of a gamble, because if Delma didn't buy it and say, just give me the fucking shot, then, what do you do? I guess then you start the experienced wide receiver they know is a good player, but they wanted Delma to play. Yeah. It seemed like it was a ploy all along, though.
0: Yeah, that's the way the movie played it. Well, at least the way Nick Nolte interpreted it. But that's not the way I read it. I think it was legit they didn't think Delmo was going to be able to play. He says throughout the movie, his body is essentially a temple. He doesn't do needles. He doesn't do drugs. And he's also, as the coaches describe him, a super wuss. He doesn't like pain or something, they say. So I think it was legit. We need you to start more than likely Nick Nolte or Phil or whatever, because this guy is not going to be ready to go. Maybe if this other coach can somehow shame him into, to use an antiquated phrase, but one that I think fits the frame of this movie, man up and take the needle in his hamstring, then maybe he'll play after all. But Nick Nolte will always be the fallback. I never really read it as a true ploy. Like, they expected Delmo to be shamed into doing it, but it was like, you know, maybe he will, but if he doesn't, then we still got Nick Nolte to go with.
1: It is Delma, by the way. I thought they were saying Delmer, but I'm on the IMDb whenever I watch these movies. And I'm looking at Delma, D-E-L-M-A is the name oh, of Oh, it is? Guy. I heard
0: it is Delmo. Delma. Delma, okay.
1: So we're talking about North Dallas 40, but Chris is drinking tea again, Mr. Healthy, and I'm drinking CC, I think, and Diet Pepsi, as per usual.
0: Well, see, after seeing Nick Nolte's ripped <laughs> physique for this movie, it just reinforced for me that I really got to get myself in shape. I'm only slightly older than Nick Nolte was when he made this movie, I think.
1: And he was the sex symbol in the 70s, or one of the sex symbols as well.
0: He's a good-looking dude. He looked a lot like Josh Hartnett in this movie. Obviously, Hartnett didn't have the blonde hair or blonde mustache, but the bone structure and everything.
1: You had never seen the movie before. We watched my DVD, of course, separately. We talked briefly downstairs before we came up here, and it doesn't sound like you're quite as much of a fan as I am. And is it because one of my issues with the movie... Maybe your biggest issue with the movie, which is it might be too honest and too true. And for 1979, way ahead of its time.
0: I don't think that's an issue for me. I agree with you that as a movie, it was way ahead of its time. I think when we were talking about it downstairs, I said this. When I initially finished watching this movie, I felt scared. I felt confused. I felt slightly dirty for having watched this. I didn't know what to feel about this movie. In the last 24 hours, I've actually been thinking about it from time to time. And I like it more in retrospect because I think I've come to realize that, A, given the time it was made, 1979, it really was a little bit ahead of its time. And there were elements of the movie that I thought worked really well, especially, like I said, having given it a little bit of thought. But for me, the reason I didn't love this movie, and honestly, I don't even know, if you asked me right now, what would you say about your impression of it and give it a score? I think I'll decide that at the end of our discussion when okay. we sort of parse it through a little bit more. But there were definitely elements of the movie that reminded me of what did not work about The Longest Yard, about what did not work for me in Slapshot. These 1970s-era movies that involve some slapsticky-type stuff that to a 1970s audience maybe was funny, fast forward 40-odd years... We're not laughing. Not laughing. Case in point for me, the opening to this movie, the first... 10, 15 minutes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I had no clue what the hell was going on. It was such a jarring opening to the movie because we don't get any real backstory or explanation about what's happening. We just get Nick Nolte waking up. We quickly find out, okay, he's a football player of some kind. He got the snot kicked out of him in the last game. But then he gets picked up by his buddies, literally by shooting a shotgun into his ceiling while he's in a bath.
1: Yeah, to go cow hunting.
0: We go through that, air quotes, hunting experience. To the most bizarre party I've ever seen captured on film. And that party confused the hell out of me too. Because aside from some of the elements that we did touch on downstairs where it's casual, near sexual assault of people. And look at that character. Who was the guy that was just giving people stuff? The dude that got his shirt ripped off his body. I don't know. Which one was that? You cut to the party. People are coming in, and there's a guy at a table full of stuff. And he's just going up to people saying, Hey, I got some snakeskin boots. Let me give you those. I got this little TV. Let me give you that. And he's just giving stuff away to people. And he greets Phil when Phil comes in. And he gets his shirt ripped off by Joe Bob. I'll introduce you to this other guy. Let me just go put on a new shirt. Who the hell are you? What is going on? I think maybe the
1: logic there is that when you're this rich, and well, not that rich, but even this rich and this famous... You get things handed to you. People will talk about how a famous person is to buy a drink in a bar. This isn't actually the NFL. This is very much like any given Sunday where it's clearly the NFL, but they're not calling it that. The North Dallas Bulls are not the Dallas Cowboys, even though the coach is a Tom Landry stand-in and the quarterback is a Don Meredith stand-in.
0: The only thing that cut against that for me is that when we start the movie with Nick Nolte in presumably his apartment, house, we're not really sure. We don't really see the exterior. It's his
1: trailer, isn't it? We see later on where he wants to build a house, and he's got one of those little camper trailer dealies. Is that it, though? I'm not sure about that, because I didn't look close enough to see if he's actually in a house or a
0: trailer. It looked big enough to me that later when we saw the trailer, that rang to me as a separate place. Okay, that could be, yeah. But we don't see the exterior of where we start the movie with him, so we don't know. Either way, he's not doing that well financially. Well, that's just it, because it's a bit of a shithole. At first, I wasn't sure if he was meant to be a college student, because it read to me like a dorm room. And then he goes in the kitchen, and there's J&B, blended scotch, mm-hmm. Jack Daniels mm-hmm. labels on the window. He goes into his bathroom, and the bathroom is kind of shabby-looking. But it has a weird screen door to the outside right off the bathroom, which was an interesting touch. And that's when his football buddies literally kick in the door and Mm -hmm. shoot out the ceiling. That's why that was there, just so they can have that scene. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just the layout of that house or whatever it was made no sense. But anyway, the point is, it was not a nice place in the way that we would think of professional athletes today, certainly having a nice place. So that later on, when we get that party scene in unquestionably a mansion, so this is somebody else hosting it, obviously. It was probably meant to be some sort of booster or some sort of rich, sycophantic fan or something. But it was just inexplicable. Nobody says, here's our host. It's so-and-so. And he's the sponsor of the North Dallas Bulls and explains who he is. It's just he's a character that's there that gives stuff away. I'm confused. I don't know who any of these people are at this point. I buy that, actually.
1: And I also love the opening. The thing about this movie I remembered more than anything else is that first five or ten minutes. Because like, I always remember that whole thing. The bloody that bloody nose? Well, just the whole way it plays out. Nolte wakes up. Yes, there's blood on his pillow. And then he pulls stuff out of his nose in the bathroom because he has a bloody nose. So that's why there's blood in the pillow. He still has his jock on and his ankles are still taped. Yeah. Which could suggest that he just got blitzed and fell asleep that way. But it's also a matter of I'm too tired and too hurt to bother taking this shit off. So I'll just fall asleep like this. And he gets in the tub after he's had a joint. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he does pills there. He does pills plenty of times in the movies. Maybe he does pills there too. I think he drinks a beer as well. He does. But the reason this scene is so memorable to me is because the flashbacks have been playing the game and you see why the knee hurts, you see why the shoulder hurts, and you see why everything hurts. But it's the smile on his face because he did catch the winning touchdown. I've rarely been hurt playing sports. Your body's more banged up than mine is. I don't think you've been hurt playing sports that much. We don't play contact sports, so we shouldn't be. Maybe you've never felt this way, but I sure have. It's that looking back at what you did the night before or a week before or five years before and that smile, whether it be literal or just in your mind of, yeah, I or we, more importantly, we did that. So that's what I love about it. This guy is beat up already. He's not that old, I don't think, but he is so fucked up as it is. But he says to his girlfriend, Charlotte, later on that he'll put up with all the bullshit because he loves playing football. The smile on his face is the movie, I think. Just like the very last shot of the movie is so key because we hear he has the best hands in the game. And he's also, through a lot of the early part of the movie, obsessing about a drop pass in the game that they won, where he caught the winning pass. But the very last shot of the movie is him deliberately not catching a pass, metaphorically speaking. Seth is throwing the ball to him, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just on the street. But he puts his hands up. I'm not catching this one. I'm out. And seconds before, he's reminiscing with Seth. He's not that mad at him. But it's in that little flash. Fuck this, I'm out. I may not be mad at you, but I may never see you again either.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting closing sequence of the movie. I should emphasize, as confused as I was by this opening, I don't think it was ineffective. At least the stuff in his house. I'm glad you said that because I think it's very effective. Yeah, and the taped ankles, the way that read to me, or wearing the jock, it was less I got drunk. Well, I mean, maybe you do just take a bunch of drugs and drink yourself to sleep because you're hurting so bad. But it read more like I can't bend over to untape my ankles. I just can't reach down there, so I'm just going to go to sleep. I'll deal with it in the morning. That's
1: it, then. You're right, probably.
0: For a movie that I think was meant to be satire as much as anything, it is. this is a movie that does make you think a little bit. Maybe that's the realism element of it you talked about. It feels
1: like a documentary a lot of the time.
0: You saw that opening montage and you thought about how he was reminiscing about the winning catch with a smile on his face. I was thinking about him worrying about the pass he dropped. That's the way I think about it. I've done that too. I've won plenty of stuff, recreational sports and stuff, but I've won plenty of stuff I never reminisce about my successes i only ever fixate on so the if
1: losses. you were three for four and had two home runs and drove in six runs but then struck out or popped out you'd be obsessing with the strike or the pop out
0: obsessing is a strong word it wouldn't go away yeah i wouldn't be thinking about the game thinking oh i had a good game i would be thinking about man i shouldn't have done that or i should have been better in this way and i don't think that's healthy <laughs> <laughs> probably <laughs> not, be wrong yeah. so when he thinks about it in both ways he thinks about the winning catch but then he fixates on that miss and and then later on in the movie, people are talking to him about Great Catch. But then he goes and he talks to Seth and he talks to other people. And he's like, I can't figure out why I dropped that pass. I have the best hands. It was right in the bread basket. I had it. And I just couldn't catch it. He's a human being. Why. That's why. I know. But it's a moment of truth, I think, if you're a human being. And the fact that you can't help but sometimes just run these things through yeah. your head. Things you can't change and really probably shouldn't even bother worrying about. But it eats at you. That's why this movie really hits home for me, I think, is because... We had plenty of games this year.
1: You and I were talking softball. I had a good year. You had a very good year. But I made more errors than I'm used to making as the pitcher. And I would obsess about the fact, why didn't I catch that easy dribbler? And maybe it's because I'm 48. And sometimes it was the lighting was bad. It was this. It was that. Or even the best player in the world is going to make mistakes sometimes. So I think we relate to Phil in that way. I think I related to him when I first saw this movie, whenever that was. And I relate to him even more now. Because I thought, again, just playing softball, I'd wake up this whole season, at least the first few weeks or a month, feeling awful. I didn't feel great last year. That wasn't an issue anymore. But again, I relate to Phil so much in that way. And you've got a guy, Nick Nolte, who's not in that great of shape in this. And look at the scars they put on his body, obviously makeup.
0: Maybe Nolte had actual scars, but he's got a lot of
1: scars, not just on his legs, but there's
0: on his back and I think his arms. The makeup work they did, not just on him, but on the guy that plays Seth as well, because he has scars down his shoulders. I don't know if you noticed that. I don't know if it was meant to be his throwing. I couldn't really remember whether Seth threw right-handed or left-handed. I think he's a righty. I thought so too, but he definitely had a scar down his left shoulder in that scene where they raid the pills and the beer from the trainer's refrigerator and cabinet. We do see a lot of players in this movie that have bodies that would be realistic to 1970s football players, certainly. The big guys, especially. The big guys, especially. Nolte, maybe not so much. I think in particular the one scene where he's shirtless and he's stretching and his then-girlfriend is spying on him, watching him do this. and She's meant to be thinking, oh, this poor guy can't even sleep because he's in so much pain. But the way it played to me was almost like Will Ferrell. Very similar body type in a lot of ways to Nick Nolte in this movie. And Will Ferrell, maybe with a little bit more padding on him. But (laughs) there are moments in those movies where he does that language stretching. And then I think in one of them, he even turns him and says, This would be Blades of Glory. This is the body of a real athlete or something like (laughs) that. And so when I'm seeing Nick Nolte doing this in a really unironic way, I just start picturing Will Ferrell. And I think that hurt my appreciation of the scene a little bit because it Mm -hmm. takes the drama out of it for me. One more thing about the bathtub
1: opening I want to talk about because I love the opening so much. Maybe you don't feel the same way I do. You don't have to. That's fine. But the question is, and again, football versus what we do, which is softball, and we're Mm -hmm. amateurs, he's a pro. But if you woke up feeling as bad as this guy does, but also had that moment of glory, the team won, which is the most important thing, but let's face it, we all want to focus on what we did personally in this game. Right? Would you be like him, where that smile creeps in your face, the smile does say, that was worth it. What I'm feeling right now, what I'll feel for the rest of my life, is worth it.
0: Not for me personally, but for his character by the end of the movie, I buy that. So... This is another thing where I wonder if I watched this movie more than once. So I knew the way he expresses himself and his feelings for the game later in the movie. Because that scene that you're describing happens right off the bat, as a viewer, I'm left wondering, if you're in this much pain, why do you cling to this game the way you do? I think I would too. I think I'm too much of a wuss with pain (laughs) to do it. But... By the end of the movie, you do understand why, right? Because I think Nick Nolte's character does express to a few different people that he doesn't know who he is without football. When he goes out to the ranch, for instance, and he's talking about his plans for it and why it's taking him so long and all that, I could quit today and move here, but who am I then? And I think that's a thing that a lot of pro athletes probably experience and doesn't necessarily always get portrayed all that well on film. But by the end of this movie, you get that from Nick Nolte's character. So that's why I say if I'd seen that before and I really knew who this character was in his relationship to football and I saw that sequence in the bathtub, that makes sense to me. He's beat to hell, but to him, it's all worth it. And that smile does creep on his face because that's what it's all about to him. So it makes a lot of sense. I just don't think it was as impactful to me in the first viewing as maybe okay. it would have been otherwise.
1: All right. Well, then we'll back up here. The Business of the Game of Football was released by Paramount on August 3rd, 1979, it made $26 million bucks, which in the late 70s was pretty awesome, especially for a sports movie.
0: Was that your take on the movie, or was that a foreign title somewhere?
1: I made that at the okay.
0: I haven't found a good foreign title in a while. And so I'm listening for it every time. <laughs> was that
1: from somewhere? That would have been a very literal description of the movie. <laughs> no, that's my thing. Okay. As for a nutshell for North Dallas 40, property owner has all the time in the world to finally build his house. But will he? <laughs> Is this what he wants to do?
0: I like that nutshell. That's good. <laughs> property all the time. Maybe he doesn't even own that property.
1: I think he does. He's laid it out. Seems like it's his little
0: camper. He says he has 10 acres.
1: Okay, or... there you go. So property owner is correct.
0: <laughs> it is a factually correct nutshell. Thank God, yes.
1: <laughs> My original nutshell was actually going to be just wine, baby. <sighs> the reason why is because I watched the Al Davis 30 for 30. And it was pretty fascinating, a little too long. But of course, Al Davis, the Raiders owner, just win, baby. I'm not going to call Nick Nolte's character, the other guys in this movie, whiners, but they have a good reason to be complainers. So anyway, that was my original nutshell, just playing off of that notion and also a football thing.
0: I like that. Maybe that's a good segue to talk about one of the things from this movie that just didn't land for me. At this point, I've just accepted that certain elements of the humor from this era are just never going to play for me anymore. Have we
1: laughed in any of the 70s comedies they are supposed no. to be so hilarious that I, we've
0: covered? I've just kind of accepted that. Not
1: much. We've laughed sometimes, yeah. but Slapshot and Bad News Bears and Longest Yard and now this, and I think something else. Although I think this movie's better than I think you think it is, but I didn't laugh maybe once.
0: No, I didn't laugh either. That I accept. Even though this is described as a satire online and a farce sometimes, not funny, I don't think in 2022. Nick Nolte did have some good line delivery at times. Yeah, just I don't think mm-hmm. it lands in the same way anymore. Good wise ass. Good wise ass. But one of the key elements of the movie that I couldn't really buy into was the whole notion, and we're introduced to it in the cow hunting scene when Seth is telling Phil, "You got to play the game. You got to schmooze to and get not off just the game deck. of football, yeah. but the game." Nick Nolte's character is this smart ass guy that will not buy into the system, or he won't play ball. He won't be part of the family, or however you want to describe it. But it just seems like he is. <laughs> It looks like he's doing the best that he can do to buy into it, and it never really felt like he was that much of a rebel outsider to the rest of the team at large. He gets along with Seth, the starting QB. Good friends. Good friends. He seems to, if not love the coaching staff, at least know what to do to get through it, right? He respects Struthers. Yeah, he
1: does. He's kissing his ass a lot of the time, and he's swallowing his pride, which is what the coach wants him to do. I haven't seen the movie long enough that I forgot that G.D. Spradlin... So the guy from Apocalypse Now who gives Martin yeah. Sheen the mission and the senator in Godfather Part II and the opening scene of that movie. I thought maybe that Spratland was the owner. But no, he's the head coach. He's the Landry stand-in. And whenever Phil talks to him... By the way, I love that. Philip Elliott. Not a football name, not a Nick Nolte name. Seems like he should be some English country owner. has got billions of dollars in real estate. Sir Philip the Elliot. Sir Philip.
0: Yeah.
1: Whenever Phil deals with his coach... I don't think he's kissing his ass, but he's actually quite polite to him. The only time right. that he's ever actually emotional with him is that last sequence when he's just mad at the owner, yes. Hunter, and the owner's brother and the investigator and almost goes after these guys. But when he's dealing with Struthers at the very end, even then it's more a matter of what do you think? Not, fuck you. You are always wrong. I'm finally going to stand up to you because I'm quitting anyway. I just quit a second ago. So I'm going to finally right. tell you what I think of you. He doesn't even do that. He has more emotion than passion against the coach than he ever had before. But he's still not that much of a rebel. So maybe the screenplay, based on a best-selling book by Peter Ghent. He was drafted into the NBA, Gent was, but played for the Cowboys. And of course, the Bulls in this movie are a stand-in for the Cowboys. His only ever screenplay, and I'm not sure he's written other books, but this was a best-selling novel in 73. But maybe Ghent thought he wrote something, and maybe the director, Ted Kotcheff didn't put across, or even Nolte could be at fault here, didn't put across somebody who's as crotchety as he comes across because he doesn't seem like he's pushing back against the coach as much as the screenplay is suggesting he is. Whenever he talks with the coach, it feels to me if he doesn't agree with him, it's not like he's being a wise ass or deserves to be put on the bench. He is basically understanding his role, but not liking it. He might as well just go up and say, fuck you,
0: asshole. He still doesn't do it. He still has respect for him. If they didn't include any of that dialogue, because it's not just the first scene with Seth in the car where he has that discussion about just play ball to get along periodically throughout the movie, he has this discussion. And I was never able to understand why this was a thing that people kept talking about, because for all the reasons you just described, it seemed like Phil was doing his best to play ball, even from B.A.'s perspective, right, the coach's perspective it never felt like there was anything personal there and part of that is because of the character more generally in his analytics perspective that was fine.
1: that's out of its time that's out
0: of its time but part of it was also just he was frank about it right and i know the character is meant to be like a tough ass disciplinarian type didn't really read that way to me either it more read like you're just not cutting it you're not the best option we have and so you're coming off the bench you're just getting older you're still playing you're still playing you're still on the team And we even see other players cut, but not Nick Nolte, so he's still got a role, and the coach clearly still thinks he has a role. So again, that never really quite played for me, especially when we see Nolte meet the owner for the first time in this movie, and the owner seems to love him. You've got a role with us, even beyond your playing career, because I always got a place for a lucky man. Just don't ever think that luck is the same thing as intelligence, and we'll get along. You're on the good side of the owner. You've got a relationship that seems to be at least professionally constructive with your coach. You're in good with the QB, at least, if not other players. How are you such an outsider? Okay, this is a satire about professional football in the 70s, and it seemed to read like the book itself was maybe much more explicit. It was. And descriptive in the way it's satirizing and lampooning elements of that. So maybe it's just something they didn't come across in the screenplay.
1: Yeah, they maybe toned it down a little too much. Well, you talked about plot basically so let's get into that rotten tomatoes numbers are quite good 84% of critics like this film 6.9 out of 10 is the average though there are 25 reviews on the site only 71% of audiences it was 27th at the 1979 u.s box office rocky 2 which we've covered was number three and breaking away which we covered just earlier this year was 41st but these are the things i want you to comment on it was nominated for three afi lists one of them makes sense the top 100 genres in the sports category they did 100 movies and they had 10 categories science fiction animation courtroom drama one of them was sports Rocky Raging Bull Bull Durham Hoosiers all made that list this was nominated for that it was also nominated for the top 100 laughs and the top 100 cheers which means of course the most inspiring movies and I guess the logic there is go your own way push against the grain don't let the system beat you down That one, I guess I get a little bit more. But again, we didn't really laugh at this movie. Maybe in 1979, they probably did because the movie was well attended by audiences, even though it's not an uplifting sports movie. And Rocky 1 and then Rocky 2 were in that same time frame, Bad News Bears. They had a sequel by that point too. They were the uplifting sports movie. Mm -hmm. This movie basically says, I love this game, but I also want to say, fuck you to the way this game is designed and promoted and even played. So I'm not sure the movie entirely achieves the satire because I didn't laugh, but I also look at this and say, God, this feels so real, much like a movie that I didn't love 20 years later, any given Sunday. The one thing that does differently than this does, well, maybe many things, but one big one is that deals with concussions this deals with an awful lot of body problems and pain and all the rest and long-term ramifications on your body but nothing about concussions because back in this era or even in the early 90s it was he got his bell rung yeah I was going to say when your rung. brain was scrambled we didn't know that then so fair enough yeah. that's the one advantage that any given sunday has cuz they acknowledge that that's where it really is Lawrence Taylor's character shouldn't right. play but he does and gets he, his bonus he gets his bonus maybe and we'll see how long that guy will live we don't find out but Anyway, those are the plaudits. So what do you think about the fact that it was nominated for things like The Laughs, The Most Inspiring? The Sports Category, I guess it makes sense.
0: Sports Category, sure, yeah. The laughs, no, absolutely not. And this was one of the reasons why a list like this, what year was that from? The Laughs list, I think was 2000, 2001. If you were to compile reactions the year it was released and you told me that this hit that list somehow. Okay, yeah, maybe. Maybe even then i don't see a lot of opportunities for laughs at least in the longest yard the prison scene where you have the cross-dressing cheerleaders supposed to be funny we like to think we're more involved about this stuff but we've seen the oz television show we've seen a lot of dramas that portray in penitentiary life and how that can change people that didn't strike me as funny that just struck me as something that maybe that would happen i don't know I felt similarly about this movie at certain points, like the party at the beginning being one, but there weren't many of those. There were very few moments that I even saw the opportunity for comedy. And the cheers one, it's not cheers from the perspective of they've triumphed on the field, but you've gone your own way, I guess. I don't really see that either. To me, yes, he eventually told the owner, stick it up. I don't need this job. I'm quitting, I'm out of here. You
1: do need this job, and you love this game.
0: Exactly. You were saying hours earlier to your girlfriend, you'll put up with all the bullshit because you love playing this game. That's right. So that's why it doesn't really feel like much of a triumph of the spirit to me. You described the moment at the end where he intentionally misses the ball that Seth throws to him, and that's sort of... Great last shot. It's a great last shot. In the moment, I believe it's an honest last shot to the character, but I also think that character goes home, and two hours later, oh shit. What What did I just do? What did I do? Yeah. Right, and maybe calls the owner back and says, listen, I'll cooperate with the investigator. What was that investigation all about? They caught him smoking pot, and I think he's very correct in saying, you guys gave me harder drugs than that just to get me on the field. Mm-hmm. What's your problem? And they're legal because people make a profit off of those. Yeah, but what was the whole thing with the investigation? They hired a private investigator to do what? To find him doing something illicit so they can cut him? Looking online, I think this
1: makes this more clear. Dabney Coleman's character is the owner's brother.
0: Oh, is he? I didn't get that at all.
1: That's oh. what it says online. Joanne is supposed to be with Dabney Coleman's character, and it also says online, I didn't pick up on this, and I've seen this movie at least three times, that Coleman might be closeted gay or can't perform. And maybe that's why Joanne keeps going on with Nolte and having the casual relationship with him. So this may be started and spurred on by the owner's brother. Did you pick up on any of that at all?
0: I thought she was married to the owner. I didn't know that Dabney Coleman was the owner's brother. I had no idea who Coleman's character was. I just thought he was like a front office guy because the only time we see him in this movie is he's A, in an office, just having a meeting, and then B, he's sticking it to Nolte by saying, hey, look, first round picks, paperwork, wide Mm -hmm. receiver, he's going to take your job. So I knew he worked with the team and I knew he had a corporate role. I didn't know he was related to the owner.
1: Yeah, Coleman is Emmett Hunter and the owner is Conrad Hunter.
0: Okay, because I think we see or hear Joanne referenced as Joanne Hunter at some point. Again, I didn't know that. So it's
1: Joanne Rodney in the credits, but the logic is: I think they're going to get married.
0: That's right. They talk about don't marry him, and she says, "Well, if I marry him, you never have to worry about being cut." I thought she was talking about the owner himself, but she wasn't in a relationship with Nolte anyway, and he was the other man for her. Did not read anything about Dabney Coleman's character being gay. Did not read anything about an inability to perform, and we get the scene where Nolte's in bed with Joanne which is kind of a fun scene, because he's in so much pain, trying to roll over on top of her. He's like, oh, my knee, my
1: back. uh." It's a fairly hot sex scene, considering it's also a little bit funny. And there was a pretty good laugh there, too, which is, do you love me? Sort (laughs) of.
0: Great answer, sort of. The way Nolte portrays the character, I think, is pretty honest and pretty consistent to what the character is meant to be. He's an honest guy. When he's in this relationship with Joanne, it's basically just sex. They like each other. It's not transactional. They do enjoy each other. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's just they're not pretending to be in some sort of long-term thing. Right. So when she asks him, do you love me? And he's like, sort of. And she's, what do you mean, sort of? And she's not even terribly upset about it Mm -hmm. because he turns around and says, I like you too much to not be honest with you. Okay, that's enough, Mm -hmm. right? Because... What else is this except a bit of a booty call kind of thing or friends with benefits or something like that, right?
1: And that's apparently why the investigator is in his house that one night and why the end of the movie happens the way it does. They're setting him up to take him down. Maybe the logic is they can't just cut him. Maybe with the players' union,
0: you can't unless you have just cause. This is something I wish I knew a little bit better about the NFL in the 70s. I assume there was a players' union at that point. I can't remember the era specifically, but there was a period of time up until which players' contracts were secretive. I can't remember which baseball player it was that famously... Kurt Flood. Yeah. Publicizing what contracts are and letting people know how much other players are getting paid so you can say, hey, listen, he's making 10 times what I am and I'm outperforming him. What the hell, boss? Give me a raise. Especially in the NFL, especially for a player of Phil's age, injury history, role on the team now, I find it hard to believe that he has a long-term contract at this point, right? Mm. Even today, if you're an NFL player, you sign like a seven year mega deal it's very few players that get that guaranteed will guarantee the first year or something and then every other year it's partial guarantees or something because players get injured so much that's one of the reasons why i looked at that ending i'm like why is any of this necessary just cut the guy he was basically spending the whole movie being worried about being cut anyway so why all the pretense at the end it's possible the players union would maybe push back
1: unless it's a just cause that's the only explanation i have for you i always think about thai law this is so long ago that maybe people don't remember this, but he was, I think, a Pro Bowl-level safety with the Patriots.
0: Okay.
1: Right around the time their dominance started, they'd won, I think, one or two Super Bowls. Brady's your superstar, and these other players are superstars. But Ty Law's in that mix, too. But then Belichick says, cost too much. He's gone. Really? Aren't you going to be really hurt by him? We'll find a way. And they did, and they kept on winning anyway because NFL contracts are just that way. We're yeah. Now, anyway, where you could just get rid of somebody as easily as that which does seem pretty wrong in a sport where they suffer so much. And this movie is all about that. They really should have so much more protection for their long-term health, long-term future when an average career is about five years and you could say, save your money. But most of these people aren't that well educated because of the whole nature of the system as well. So you should help them help themselves. But when I heard that story about Ty Law, I don't know when that was, it might've been 20 years ago. It just feels like a Belichick thing, but also so savage. One of the key parts of your team, but fuck off because you cost too much
0: that brings us to the other element of this movie. You're treating these players like they're just trading cards or commodities, like pieces on a board to be moved around and analyzed and figured out what you can afford and what works best. (gasps) What? We're so inundated with all this information about the finances of professional sports and the transactional nature of professional sports. And analytics as well, which is more of a baseball thing, but that's what they're doing in this movie with football. But just looking at the transactional nature of stuff, maybe I should be more shocked by that, but I'm not. And... We see it across all sports, where players that are still contributing members of the team, but they get cut because, at least in today's era, salary caps, hard or soft, exist in basically all sports, at least in North America. In 1979, I don't know if that was the case. Obviously, owners would have been operating with less revenue, because this is pre-enormous TV contracts in the NFL, even though, like you said, this is not truly NFL, but it's an NFL analog owners are just going to self-regulate their expenses because they want to make money off of this. And Mm -hmm. granted, in this case, the owner does say, I make more money off of my manufacturing division or something than I do off of this whole team, but it's the glory of winning. So he does seem to be the kind of owner that's willing to pay to get top talent to win. So I think that's a bit of a credit to him because I think you and I are both the same way. We hate to see these sports franchises or sports teams that are just- I know you don't love the Tampa Bay Rays in baseball, I think, for this reason, and I don't either, because you know those teams are still making money. I don't feel like anybody should be compelled as an owner to lose money to win, mm-hmm. but if you're making tens of billions of dollars and you're putting that in your pocket, that feels like maybe to take up a different business. Let this go to somebody that wants to really fight for the victory. Well, that's
1: the problem with the big business owner, which may not be the case with the Rays, but so many sports owners... Some of them really do care about their team and they let a talented person run it, the GM or a series of people in front office roles. Or maybe they themselves know enough about the sport to be a part of it, but they basically let the executives put together the team that can win, which is also a crapshoot. You might put together what looks like an awesome team and then injuries happen or they don't gel or they just don't play very well and they lose anyway. But the owners that don't know anything about the sport don't care about the sport. You do feel it's more a matter of they would just cut a tie law or a Phil Elliott and say, man, the hell with it. You almost want somebody in charge of the team who does have at least some, maybe not that much, but some element of fandom in them. Yes. And loyalty to the best players because you feel like they can be a part of the locker room. Analytics is such a part of the game now where he's not contributing anything more. But yeah, but maybe he's making the superstar calm down with the other superstar.
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: he's that good a leader, then that's invaluable. And if you don't think that's the case, you've never played in a team before.
0: That's right.
1: And it seems like Phil isn't really quite that leader. There's no one person who really seems like he's the ultimate leader. Actually, on this team, when they're all getting psyched up before the big game in Chicago,
0: which was a fun scene, these
1: guys that are psyching each other up yeah. and they're slamming their elbows in the How
0: lockers, do it? How get right? It? vicious, vicious. That
1: goes on a while. We see yeah. a lot of the game in Chicago, but we see probably about as much of the build-up to the game, including, of course, when Phil is getting the B twelve shot in his knee. <sighs> it's numb. I'm fine now. Delma's the same, so he can play, and his hamstring's messed up. But, but I that, guess that... it wears off because he starts grabbing at the hamstring and just gets hammered. His hammy's already bad, and then he gets hammered, and also his face is fucked up from that.
0: What they got shot into them was different than what they were getting before. What uh, they got shot into them pre game was xylocaine, which is an anesthetic. It's lidocaine. It's like okay. what you might get shot into your face in small doses if you're getting cavities. Okay. So it totally numbs it. As somebody that has had back issues and knee problems, when that doctor just jams the needle and works it around to get yes, it into all the right. muscle, that was <laughs> nails down the spine. Hit the right spot, please. But when Phil's walking off, he's like, eh, numbed it right up. Can't feel anything. Brand new knee, right, doc? And I'm thinking, oh boy, that's when you just bugger your body. You're already broken. You're already hurt. And then you do things your body shouldn't be doing in that state. And then when the lidocaine wears off or whatever, you're just going to be that much more of a mess. And this is team policy. Yeah, it's team policy. And that's what we saw with Delmo, right? Because (laughs) Delma. (laughs) Delma. Stupid name. As he's being carted off, somebody says surgery in hushed tones. So I think... Originally, he had a strain in his hamstring Mm -hmm. that he suffered in practice, and they numbed it out. But then by the end of the game, when he gets smashed and hurt, I think that's supposed to be a muscle tear. It's torn right off.
1: And through it all, we've got the coaches talking about probabilities and things that should happen because of analytics, yeah. which seems so ahead of its time in 1979, especially for a sport like football. Charles Durning, who second build, I believe, in this movie, he's way up there anyway, considering he's the assistant coach. Mm-hmm. And he'd been acting for a long time. He was great in movies like The Sting before this, Dog Day Afternoon before this. And then Sorry. he's the governor Papa O'Donnell and Old Brother Warthorne <laughs> as well. He worked forever. Durning's assistant coach is just backing up what Spradlin, the head coach, thinks. Right. What about analytics in this movie?
0: In a movie from 1979, you never anticipate stats being thrown at you, especially with football. Yeah. I loved the introduction to this coach character when Nick Nolte, and I think this is the first time we see Dabney Coleman's character too, they go into the office and they sit down as Coleman's character is wrapping up a meeting. And the coach sits behind a computer Mm -hmm. from 1979, clicking a button I love advanced stats for baseball in particular, but to a lesser extent, hockey as well. Football, I don't have a clue about advanced analytics or anything like that. And frankly, from what we see today, what they're spouting in this movie is basic. You run this route and make uh, first down 9.5% more of the time and things like that. So very basic. But I love the coach sitting at that computer, pressing a button, presumably reading all the stats that populate one line at a time on the monochrome monitor. He's talking at the screen. He's not even looking at Nolte. What I took away from this movie as a whole, and from this scene in particular, is that this coach, it's not that he's mean-spirited, it's not that he's a disciplinarian, necessarily, it's just that he is such a numbers guy. He's almost like the Vulcan of this movie, right? Pure logic, pure numbers. He himself is a computer. The human element doesn't even play into it. The assistant coach is basically a mouthpiece for him. As a computer geek, the thing I love most of all is that they did it right. They did it true. Because that's a real computer he's on. Mm -hmm you know it's a real computer because there's a 1979 modem sitting next to it. They don't use the modem. It has no purpose in the scene, except that this was clearly somebody's office that had a modem in 1979. One of those things that you take the big 1979 telephone handsets and jam it into the top of the modem, right. kind of like war games style <laughs> and dial out. I see that... Coleman's in war games. Actually, that's true. You talk about a movie that is authentic. These are the small touches that they didn't necessarily need to make they could have cut corners but the fact that they did this meant that later on when the coach is spouting these stats these probabilities to the players in a players' meeting before their game against chicago i would buy that this coach would do that because of this previous scene where he is clicking away on a 1979 era computer reading stats off to nick nolte and not even looking at him while he's doing it Mm -hmm. until the very end of the conversation And I love that in a movie from this era, they were able to do analytics in a convincing way, in a way that I don't think we saw done in a sport movie again until Moneyball, maybe. And again, if you've ever played a sport before, especially with a friend, because Seth
1: and Phil are friends, is Phil the best option as a wide receiver for an entire game, for an entire season anymore, compared to a Delma or the number one draft choice? He's coming for you, which is always going to be true. You always have to worry about somebody coming up who's better than you, and the yeah. team needs to find that person. Maybe he plays in addition to you, or maybe he does bump you because they need to find the best player they can find. But there's also the human element. And when the quarterback has a click with that guy, mm-hmm. i played flag football and just touch football with friends. I've played real football before. And every once in a while, I've been a quarterback. I don't know what it is. One of my closest friends on this team is over here, but I'm clicking with that guy. I barely know. That's the human element that the coach, the coaches, are not bringing into this. And that's why Phil's so valuable. In the game against Chicago, they're all covered in mud and dirt, right. and they're bloody, except Phil, when he finally plays at the very end of the game. <laughs> he's sparkling clean because he didn't play a single down. Right. you think he would play sometimes yeah. through that game. He didn't play once until they needed him because Delma is going to the hospital.
0: Well, not just that, but because you see that scene where Seth is arguing. You can't hear what he's saying, but you're seeing this from Nick Nolte's perspective on the bench. Yeah. He's yelling at the coach, one last play. Or at that point, maybe there was two plays left in the game. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, end of the game, he's yelling. You can't hear it. He's pointing at Nick Nolte. The coach is saying, no, we've got other options. Stats say this. He's saying, no, screw that. I know this guy. I know the route he's going to run. If we have to adapt to the defense on the fly, I know where he's going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get the scene earlier in the movie where the coach is grilling Nick Nolte. They watch the play that we see in flashback at the beginning of the movie where Nolte catches the winning catch. It's a fluke. It's a fluke, right? It's a deflection by one of the defenders, and Nolte just reads the play, and he's able to haul down the pass. And Nolte says, well, it looked like we scored a touchdown. We won the game. And the coach says, no, that's a fluke. To a certain extent, he's correct. They're both right. But they're both right, because I think there is a skill to reading the play as it's evolving and adapting to the defense and staying light on your feet and being able to make that split-second move and decision to get to where the ball is going to be and Seth is saying, I don't care what the stats say, if we've got one play and I've got to make a pass, it's going to be to him because right. he's going to know where I'm looking and I know where he's running. And it's funny to talk about a movie 40-odd years ago arguing this cold logic and analytics versus the feel of the game, the locker room guy. This might be actually maybe the best moments of this type I've seen in any sports movie is the linebacker, lineman sorry that i can't remember the name of the giant dude not joe bob his buddy he's psyching himself up with. john matusik yes sloth in the goonies that's sloth he was
1: a raiders lineman i knew he was a raiders lineman and he's shattuck in this movie joe bob pretty is bo Svenson. his hands are huge especially are when huge. he's got dale haddon who's charlotte in the air when he's assaulting her. we're going to call it at that party we would certainly call it assault now his hands just dwarf her yeah. whole head. Someone's like man. under the giant could cover up somebody's whole head. Joe pretty and Shattuck are the two big guys, Spencer and Matusik.
0: So after they lose in Chicago and they're shutting it down for the year and the assistant coach comes through and I think he's just being the assistant coach that he is throughout the whole movie, ragging on these guys. i yeah. just ragging on them. And Matusik's character launches into this speech about we're just pawns on the chessboard it's all just numbers to you we don't give a damn about the money we don't give a damn about the stats we love this game we just want to play the game he's speaking for himself but he's also speaking for nick nolte's character right because it's to him not about the paycheck certainly not in this era Mm -hmm. they're putting their bodies through this punishment because they love it this is what they know this is what they love to do and the coaching staff just doesn't get that and it's mostly the head coach because like you said the assistant coach doesn't really have his own will So it's that conflict between the analytics and human element that we see throughout the movie, but it's really brought to that really effective head when Matusik goes on the speech at the end. When you
1: say it's a game, and I'm saying it's a business, but then you say it's a business, I say it's a game.
0: That is the most
1: powerful moment in the movie for me. It's also a great visual in the preparing, and when that practice gets intense, I believe the owner is in the stands watching them in that whole sequence. B.A. is in some kind of high thing, Yes, that's right. Which gives him a better view, granted. And it's not supposed to be a coach trying to say, I am bigger and better than all of you, literally. But in a movie sense, that's exactly what this is. I lord over all of you, dozens of feet in the air. I need a walkie-talkie or an intercom or something to talk to the assistant coach, Charles Durning, to relay these plays, rather than being on the sidelines. If I was a head coach, I'd want to be right there with these guys the whole time. But I guess I get why you'd want the bird's eye view, too. And in a movie, that's absolutely deliberate.
0: I think it absolutely played that way too. That impression that this coach views himself as being above the players themselves. This is another good visual cue as to that conflict between business and sport that you were just talking about. He doesn't care to be down to the players because he doesn't care about the human element of it. He doesn't care to build a relationship with them. He just wants to be on high so that he can make sure that they are running the routes that he's drawn up so that they can maximize their statistical odds of winning the next game they're bits and bites they're
1: not blood and bones yeah that's one way to put it for sure so i read online that the screenplay was written by well it was of the director peter ghent and frank yablons also nancy dowd was uncredited and she wrote Slapshot. <laughs> which also has a lot of business of sports type stuff in that so she Does. wrote some screenplays that we didn't love as far as movies go well i like this movie more than you do i think but She really does know what she's doing when it comes to the different levels of sports, not just showing the sport being played. And we love to play, and we won or we lost. There's a lot more going on than wins and losses in Slapshot and in this. But Gent's book, apparently, the reason why it's called North Dallas 40, is it's based on segregation. Black players in Dallas, in reality, when he was with the Cowboys, weren't allowed to live near the practice field. I believe the 40 referred to an area, like the 8 Mile thing in Detroit, Eminem's thing. 8 Mile refers to a line of demarcation in Detroit. So that's what that's all about. And yet this movie doesn't, that I can think of, deal with race. There are black players on the team, not a lot of them, way more white players. Now, of course, you probably have more black players than white players. Yes. Peter Ghent is a white man pissed off that the black players aren't allowed to just be with their teammates. We have seen so many sports movies in the past, usually college sports, basketball, Glory Road, for example. Right. They're all about how if you're not going to respect the black players on our team, then the white players are going to finally bond an hour and 25 minutes in the movie, usually, or so. And we're not going to go into that establishment either. If you're not going to support the black guys and accept them, this movie doesn't even get into that fact, and yet it's no. called
0: that. I never would have guessed that was the origin of the name. Much like we talked about with Blue Crush, that is <laughs> never referenced, like the title of this movie is never referenced in the movie itself. And yeah, race, the only reference I can remember at all, Joe Bob goes to get his B12 shot in the ass prior to his business meeting. I can't remember what Nick Nolte said to him exactly, but again, he's pissing off the giant guy, and he's running away. And two players hold back Joe Bob. They're two black players. Let me go. It always did take two of you to hold one of me. Okay, so that's a racial jab. Yeah. But that was it. It's not like this movie is riddled with racial tension.
1: I think there was a scene earlier on, there was something subtle. Well, I guess it paid off with that scene, which is takes two of you. But then when they're all getting fired up, there are guys who had been clashing earlier who are doing the, you hit me, I hit you, yeah. you hit the locker, I hit the locker, because then it all comes down to, we're going to war. Football players think of themselves as warriors. So I may not have liked you yesterday, and I may not like you tomorrow, but today I'll die for you, you'll die for me. So yeah. the racist stuff in this movie could have been more of a factor. This movie is basically two full hours, and maybe they thought, we can't put that in here too, except that deals with the whole topic and the title of this guy's screenplay and his book.
0: Thinking about the themes that this movie is trying to portray already, I do wonder if trying to portray the race thing as well, maybe it would have been just too much, and then you just lose other elements and you don't do the race conflict justice. Maybe something to explain the title of the movie would have been nice, but I don't think it necessarily needed the whole story arc to do it. Talking about Joe Bob, and I was just thinking about the team element and the firing up, and we're going to war... That character, throughout the movie, right up into the final game, don't piss him off, don't mess with him. He's a man-child, but he's fearsome. He will get what he wants. Joe Bob? Joe Bob. That party scene Nick Nolte is talking to... Joanne? Charlotte. Charlotte, that's Charlotte, yeah. Joanne is the fiance of Dabney Coleman or whatever. He points to Joe Bob being an ass towards one of the other women. He says, this is just a lesson that the biggest and strongest get what they want, and the fact that you agree doesn't really play into it. He's just going to get what he wants because he's so damn big. But then we get to that final game... And we see Joe Bob getting the snot kicked out of him. Yeah. And right into the final huddle with Seth calling the plays. He's, he's like, whining. Yeah. He's like, Joe Bob, I've been on my ass all day. Don't let this guy touch me this time. Yeah. I'm hurt real bad. <laughs> we all are. Shut the fuck up and listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> we spend an hour and a half, hour 40 minutes being told how big, how strong, how tough this guy is. And this game is such a brutal game. That even he can be broken down. Exactly. The
1: movie's not saying he's not mentally tough, but everybody has their breaking point. Yes. And these guys are trying their best. In this game, that doesn't seem to have any fans, by the way. It is shot pretty artily, much like any given Sunday often is. No
0: cheering. I thought maybe they didn't have the budget. But you can have the lights in such a way that they did, where you can see the light standards up high and then dark stands on the field level. The bright lights are obscuring your view of the stands. But I think they probably should have tried to work in some background audio to make it feel a little bit more like an mm-hmm. actual game. Because it did feel, like you said, a little bit too arty for what the content was. Yeah, no one's watching in yeah. Chicago, caring about their team. <laughs> yeah, nobody in Chicago cares about football, <laughs> Or right? beating
1: Dallas, North Dallas. So Nick Nolte, we've covered him before, Blue Chips and Warrior. Dale Haddon, so D-A-Y-L-E, Haddon, is Charlotte. She was in The World's Greatest Athlete in 1973, which I've never seen before. That's a sports movie, though. I did double check. She and Nolte have some screen time together, but unless I blinked and missed it, I don't get why they go from, he sleeps at her place literally, <laughs> not sleeping over in the sense of, hey, let's do it, and then I'll sleep over. He just literally falls asleep on her couch. But then later on, they're just together.
0: I didn't mind their relationship later in the movie, but the way they got to that latter stage, I agree, it was also super confusing. They meet in a really awkward way at that party. She sees all the craziness going on, and she leaves. She goes home. We don't even really know how he knows where she lives. That's never really... Could have trailed her, I guess. He was at the party for a good amount of time after she left. But he shows up at her house and he collapses on the couch. Grab a home Yeah. And she says, you can't sleep here. He says, oh, thanks for letting me sleep here. And falls asleep. I can't remember if it was that scene or later. He says, I'm desperately lonely. Later on in the movie, we see him in the sex scene with Joanne. I'm like, oh, so he does have somebody. She's not married to Dabney Coleman yet. Maybe they're living together. I don't know. So why did he tail this stranger home? He has no future with Joanne. That's why he knows it. Does he have a future with this random woman he just met?
1: More of than the woman who's going to get married to the owner's brother.
0: I guess. She did have spectacular late 70s hair. So, I mean, (laughs) it's hard to resist that, I guess. But he never really explained how they got from that to, hey, we're in a relationship now. It's a movie that doesn't have
1: a bad relationship situation with the two of them. Nolte and Haddon, but doesn't necessarily need to be in there. It didn't really... We've seen worse tacked on situations in other sports movies, let's put it that way.
0: Agreed. And to its credit, it doesn't really languish on the relationship. It doesn't dedicate a ton of screen time to the relationship between Phil and Charlotte, and it doesn't need to. It serves a purpose when they visit his property that you talked about earlier, right? Because then we see, okay, well, this is a guy that kind of has a future plan. He's not mentally ready to accept that that's the phase of his life yet, and that's Mm. why it's taking him so long to do anything here. And then a little bit later on, I guess in the movie, there's one or two scenes where she says, oh, I saw how beat up and broken you really are. Why do you play this game? And we get a little bit more insight into his mental connection to football and how it informs who he is. But beyond that, we don't really get a lot of screen time with the two of them. I think that's probably a smart choice on the film's part because like you said, we've certainly seen a lot of movies where there's a lot of forced relationship screen time that doesn't really serve any purpose in the story except we need to give the moms in the audience or the women in the audience something to look at. Okay, I don't know if... Anybody who's disinterested in sport is going to come just for the relationship aspect of the movie. (laughs) All right. The only other thing about this movie that I think maybe we haven't touched on that's worth talking about, because it is something we talk about a lot with these movies, the end of the game against Chicago. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Everything that leads up to Phil going to the game, Delma's injury, the argument between Seth and the coach, he gets put in and he makes the catch. Mm -hmm. He scores the touchdown. And at that point, it's 14-7 and he's celebrating like he just won the game. But of course- No, it must be 14-13. Before he makes the catch. Okay, yeah. Sorry. But he makes the catch, and then it's 14-13. He's celebrating, like... The extra point's obvious. We're going to get that. Yeah. We'll get to overtime. Exactly. And but I then thought, they botch They snap. They botch the snap. I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. I thought maybe they go for a two-point conversion and botch that. But yeah, just botch the snap and the game's over. At the moment, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And it didn't really sink in much more than that. But this is a movie that made me reflect on it a little bit. That's kind of the way it is, I'm sure, for athletes with their career, right? This will never end. It's just going to be glory and fine, glory and fine, glory and fine. And then it's over. For most athletes, anyway, it wasn't going out in a blaze of glory. Oh, I've just been told I'm cut and it's over. And what do I do now? And that's kind of the way the end of the game felt. Yeah, we had this moment of glory and oh, it's just over.
1: And Hartman, I believe, is the guy who doesn't catch that snap. The snap is fine. Right. He just takes his eye off the ball and botches it so they don't get the kickoff. And he's the guy who has a wife that Seth is sleeping with. So Seth isn't the most moral guy either. And also Seth knew all along what was going to happen with Phil and that's one reason why, too, Phil seems to be willing to say, to hell with you, except he's not really. We had a hell of a time, didn't we? As he looks back at him. So it's almost like Phil still thinks this guy's his friend, even though Seth is basically saying, I'm playing the game. I'm playing ball. I know it has to happen here because I still have to take care of myself and I can't help you 100% of the time. But Seth has been banging a player's wife, which is not a smart move because that could cause real problems on this team. Although if you had to choose, Hartman would be gone in a second and they'd choose the quarterback. Well, Hartman is the
0: backup quarterback, right? He's like the young kid who's trying to chase down. Okay, so maybe Seth would be gone. There. It All might right. be Seth at this point. We don't know. But I think the reason for me anyway that Nolte reacted that way, as much as it confused me in some ways, it goes back to the consistent refrain we hear from Seth talking to Phil. You got to play the game. So at the end of the movie when Nolte says, hey, did you know? And he's like, yeah, I knew the whole time. Nick Nolte wasn't particularly angry, but you're going to do everything you can to prolong your career and if that means the team was investigating me and you didn't tell me because you didn't want to piss off the owner the coach whomever I get it and I don't blame you but I'm out hands in the air credits one of the many things I give this movie credit for is that Nolte's character it never felt like he acted inconsistently to me
1: he's a guy who stands by his morals right up to the very last shot of the movie he might wake up the next day and say oh fuck what did I just do (laughs) I think he will yeah. But he's not going to sell out either. I think that's fair. Mac Davis, by the way, this was his debut as an actor. I think he's pretty good for a singer-songwriter. If you've never heard of Mac Davis, look him up on Spotify or something, and you'll see, I'm sure, plenty of his songs. But I think he does a pretty good job. And I mentioned that Charles Durning was in The Sting. Well, Mac Davis was in The Sting too, <laughs> around the same time as this movie, which was not nearly as successful as the first Sting was. Ted Kotcheff have directed this movie. He worked in many genres. I again recently saw First Blood, I was never the biggest fan the first time I thought it was terrible, actually. But seeing it two or three times since, I think it's one of the better war movies I've ever seen. And Stallone's Speech at the End, which I used to hate, now I really fucking get it. So he did a good job directing that film, which isn't really about blood and violence, because there's one death and it's accidental. Then he did a war film a couple years after First Blood that I think is, maybe a year after, is one of the most underrated war films I've seen It so many times, Uncommon Valor. Oh, yeah. But then the same guy who had done this satire comedy, whatever you want to call it, North House 40, before those two, does Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> so he worked hard, in all the genres. Hard left. Yep. Depiction of the sport. I think it's pretty great. This is one of the most honest depictions of the brutality of football mm-hmm. and the price your body pays for playing it, except they don't get the concussions part on this, but we know that was the way it was until fairly recently. And as for scoring, well, Phil sure does. Oh, he has yeah. that enthusiastic sex with Joanne and then it falls for Charlotte. And you can certainly score if you like half-naked men traipsing around the locker room. <laughs> okay.
0: That is one thing that this movie had in common with Any Given Sunday, was the locker room shots. Albeit, you get a lot of ass shots in this movie. You don't get a lot of full frontal male nudity in this movie. If any. There was one character in the locker room scenes only ever appears when players are walking around mostly naked before or after games. Very hairy. That is the hairiest man I've ever seen. He looked like a real life Wolverine because he was reasonably short, muscular, big, strong guy, but short and just body hair everywhere.
1: Let's play football, bub.
0: (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And my favorite moment with him is when, for some reason, there's a shot in the bathroom of the locker room where there's one or two guys primping themselves at the mirror, three guys just taking shits in the open urinal, Mm -hmm. or rather, open stalls, not open urinals. And then this really stout, hairy guy just saunters through the <laughs>
1: Look,
0: What is happening? I'm loving this. This is amazing.
1: As for a score, I'm thinking you're going to be less than this, but I would give it an eight. Even though I didn't laugh, it's just a good movie, period. Much like, say, Million Dollar Baby, which is about boxing, but it's way more than that. The Karate Kid. I heard a recent interview with the guy who plays Crease. Martin Cove. Right, cool. and he was talking about how it was one of the great sports movies on some list and he said I don't think it's a sports movie and the Karate Kid is and so is a lot of the other ones we just talked about but it is a jumping off point for something bigger it's about relationships and this movie is about the business and making sacrifices and making compromises sports is a part of this movie absolutely and it's well depicted I'd say it's also ahead of its time as a sports movie it's
0: more honest than most but it's just hard to laugh at brutal truths you are rating it higher than I would but you've talked me up what's it going to be? I'm thinking like a 7 out of 10. All right, I'll take like it. That. I can't watch a movie that is self-described as satire, not laugh, and then not criticize it for that, even though we've experienced that, like I said, with other movies of these genre from the 70s. I think it's just a generational thing that is lost on us now. And this is a movie that succeeds in a lot of ways. I really like the way that Nick Dulty plays his character. I really like a lot of the relationships. I like that conflict between sport and business. One of the things you really... Convinced me of is the value of the authenticity of the movie. But I also can't necessarily forgive entirely the fact that I don't understand the label of rebel. This character is we're told he has, and I don't see it. But one thing I will say for this movie, and this was not true of The Longest Yard, was not true of Slapshot, and basically isn't true of most movies we talk about on the podcast, is it's a movie that I watched yesterday and have actually been thinking about on and off Mm. over the last 24 hours it's not like i sit here and just ponder this movie but it's staying with me and i think that speaks highly of it too because that just means there's something to it if you see it again you might look at even more next time i think this is probably a movie that benefits if you watch it sporadically over the years Mm -hmm. and you know a little bit about the overarching story we talked about it when we were talking about the opening of the movie if I rewatch this movie in the future that'll hit mm-hmm. better for me than it did on the first watch I'll understand the context of it a little bit better knowing what it means to him in the opening and then what he's giving up at the end and this part that
1: we don't see which is what did I just do but they were going to suspend him anyway so I guess one way or another he was if not done at football might as well have been probably true yeah, yeah. alright in two weeks the Major League Baseball playoffs will be in full swing eh, full swing so let's take a look at another baseball film <laughs> i work in the news chris i have to my bad pun sometimes john goodman plays the sultan of squat the bambino the goat george herman ruth in the babe we're on twitter i am at moviefiend 51 chris is at scoring at movies you can find this podcast in all the podcast places you look for the email address is scoring at the movies at gmail.com so take her easy phil
0: elliott it's time to find something else to do with your life maybe build that house i for sure you're going to say it's time to find somewhere else to get your codeine. And <laughs> <laughs> what about your painkillers? You're <laughs> going to find those.